Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 in our Sunrise service this morning on the back property, we read this chapter together and imagined what it must have been like to be there that morning, on Sunday morning, when the tomb was found empty. And I want us to consider that for just a few moments today. I want us to look at the crown of victory. We've been talking about the king of two crowns this weekend. We looked at the crown of thorns on Friday night for Good Friday. And today we're going to talk about Jesus' crown of victory. You know, in 1832, an American senator by the name of William Macy, Marcy, excuse me, William Marcy, coined a phrase, to the victor go the spoils. To the victor go the spoils. Many of us have quoted that, not having any idea where it came from. But Senator Marcy was defending the spoils system 200 years ago almost now, in which victorious politicians award appointments and job to their friends and to their supporters. We kind of see where 200 years of that have gotten us. All right, that was a joke. Obviously not a good one. But the award of spoils is exactly what we're talking about on Easter Sunday morning. Except for it's going to be a little different, but this is what we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. You know, when we come to the resurrection in the gospel accounts, there's two things that we have to do here. First of all, we we have to look back to understand what happened. It is the light of the empty tomb cast upon the cross of Jesus Christ by which we come to understand what our faith and our salvation is all about. And once we've looked back to understand and apply, then we look forward for our focus to remain on the author and the perfecter of our faith. So this morning in the message, I want to begin by looking back just a little bit, and I want to show you how even the scriptures show us this pattern for ourselves. Go with me to Luke chapter 24. I'm going to read verses 5 through 9, and you'll remember at this point in the gospel account, the, the ladies have gone to the tomb early that morning to give one final anointing of the body with spices. This was part of their tradition. They would take spices to anoint the body in an act of honoring and an act of mourning and remembering the person who had passed. And that's where we pick up. When they got to the tomb and they arrived, there was no one in the tomb. The tomb was empty. And all of a sudden, two men who were actually angels appeared to them. And this is what they said, verse 5. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. What a striking question on such a mournful morning. You know, as we talk about looking back 
When we find them in verse five here, they, they were not looking back. They were, as grief so often does to us, they were stuck in the past. And as grief does, it, it causes our mind to kind of turn over and over again, not only the final events in someone's passing, but even those immediately preceding. And we go back and could anything have changed? Could something have been different to, to offset this, to, to take it a different route? And, and it always comes back to the, the grave. There's a finality to death that I believe is just beyond human comprehension. I think it's beyond the human mind and, and surely it, it engages us to think more seriously about this life. But instead of looking back, they were stuck in the past of two days prior on a Friday when he had been crucified and then ultimately laid in the tomb. But you see what the angel says to him is, don't just look back and get stuck in your mourning. He says, don't you remember what he said? Don't you remember what he told you? How, how he would give up his life and be delivered into the hands of sinful men and he would be crucified on the third and then on the third day, rise. And so he takes them out of the, the surprise and the shock of mourning and he leads them back into the very words of Jesus himself, into his teaching. And he says to them, go back further than just the account of his death and his burial, but go beyond that to his teaching about what this meant and all that would have to be transpired. And then in that remembrance, look forward to all that it must mean for eternity. Now, they were more interested in what it meant for the here and now because if he's not dead, if he is truly here and risen, what does that mean then? What does that mean? Well, we understand today as we have the great advantage 2,000 years later to look back and to have many wise scholars and, and, and those who have, have taught us the word of God in the past to instruct us as to all that uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means. And, and really, when we look at it, the resurrection of Jesus Christ stands unmatched in every way. I mean, maybe the biggest way for all of us is that it splits history. Like the, the, the letters change after the numbers. We stop counting down, now we count up. Why? because of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and who he was. And yes, there are those who deny that and change the letters and those kinds of things, but the fact of the matter is, it split history right in two. It changes anthropology and our understanding of humanity. I mean, think about this. We, we know what a human body is like, and we, on this side of the grave, we know the frailty of it, and we know the, uh, the, the, the terminal nature of it. I mean, a little bit of age is enough to tell you, wow, I've got more aches today than last year or the year before that, and I'm probably going to have more in the future. We, we know that this, this life is but a vapor, and this body is part of that vapor. But man, when Jesus came back, he had a body there was a resurrection body that was different and distinct from the body of when he was on earth as a man. It was similar, but it was not identical. And so in just these two simple ways, we see that the impact of the resurrection is, is really unlimited, addressing some of the biggest factors of life that we've not yet fully figured out. But, but none was more impactful than what I would call the essence of the resurrection as revealed 
in the Bible. You see, Jesus, the Bible tells us that Jesus' resurrection was his great victory over sin, over Satan, over hell, over death, and over the grave. And I think there's a reason that all of those are listed at different points in history. Different aspects of those have become a point of contention or point of argument where we've continued to see that the resurrection proves supreme in all of them. But it is so important that that the Apostle Paul gives a whole chapter to it in his first letter to the Corinthians. And and he basically follows this same pattern of of stating the simplicity of the gospel in verses 3 and 4. And then beginning in verse 5, he backs up and begins to look back at what has transpired, how it matters for us on this earth, and then why eternally it changes everything. You see, Jesus' resurrection changes everything, friends. It changes your past, it changes your present, and it changes your eternity, your future. And so we begin this morning by looking back. That's kind of how we've addressed this whole two-part series. The, the King of Two Crowns, I've titled this message uh, a series. And it began on Good Friday where we looked at the crown of thorns of Jesus on Good Friday that he wore for us to understand what it was that his crown of thorns meant and why it mattered for us. And we remembered that that crown of thorns was the adorning of our sin. It was the adorning of our shame and our guilt and condemnation upon him. That we didn't wear it because he wore it for us. That we didn't have to die in our place. And even if we did, it would do us no good because we weren't enough. We weren't the spotless, perfect lamb that he was. And when he died on the cross, he atoned for our sin. It was not his sin, for Jesus was sinless and perfect. And even there, that can be hard for us to fully comprehend. And yet we receive it by faith because the scriptures teach us this truth. But it also tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that Jesus was sinless in his own actions and his own being, his very nature. But he became sin for us. In other words, he took on our nature in our behalf and in our place that we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that beautiful, friends? Isn't that beautiful? The great exchange, as one friend qualifies it in song. Jesus willingly chose to wear the crown of thorns and die on the cross for the sins of people. Now, we remember also in looking back how it was that Jesus accomplished what he did for us in his death. Now, there's not extensive writings in the scripture of all that this means, but what happened in those over three-day period from Friday to Sunday, what happened when Jesus was dead and in the grave? Was there anything taking place or was he just lying dormant as a dead body does? No. No, he wasn't. He was very busy. And I'll make the argument here. If we are to turn to the Apostle Paul's writing in the chapter, or in Ephesians chapter 4, it tells us in three short verses all that was transpiring and, and in the larger narrative of it. Let me read these for us so we can understand the context. 
It says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse nine, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, typically, this is not a passage of Scripture that pastors turn to for Resurrection Sunday. Why? Well, the context of this passage is Jesus teaching about uh, the church and about the giftings that he gives to the church so that the church can be equipped for ministry and for the work of his kingdom. But he tells us in these three verses a very interesting aspect of what was transpiring on those three days when he was laid in the tomb. Now, scholars debate whether or not Jesus actually descended into Hades or is this just a poetic reference to the incarnation and him coming down to earth in general. I'm becoming convinced the word scholar is just a complex word that means I like to argue. And so while they're arguing, let me just tell you what it really means and we'll get with it and move on from it. Here's what it means, because the early church leaders believed that it actually referred to Hades. That Jesus, when he came and he offered up his life on the cross, and then when he was in the tomb for three days, he descended into the lower regions and he paid a home visit to Satan, if you will. And there he became victorious over Satan. Now, later scholars argued, well, that's really just a reference to his incarnation. And it means that he humbled himself to become a man and, and, and he walked upon the earth. But even today, there's a move back towards the historical position. Why? Because of the very nature of the grammar and the words that are used. It's not just talking about feet on solid ground on the earth. There's something under the earth. There's a lower region that he is referring to here. And so let me bring some summarizing to this. Here's what we can confidently say about it. Jesus willingly walked into Satan's domain and defeated him. That's what we can say, friends. There's no argument or question about this, and that's why it's important. You see, Jesus willingly laid his life into Satan's grip of death, but Satan could not hold him. When Jesus said, let go, he had to. Satan walked into, I mean, Jesus walked into Satan's house, the grave itself, and locked the door. Even had guards posted outside. But when it was time for Jesus to get up and walk out, there wasn't anything Satan could do to stop him. You see, what does it mean that he ascended, but that he descended? I just like to put a little bit of lanism on this, if I may, for a moment. And I hope you'll indulge me for a moment. I think Jesus walked right down and did some righteous smack talk to tell Satan, you know you're a defeated foe, and from this moment forward, there won't be any question about it. And then he walked out. He walked out, friends. Regardless of where exactly they met, 
Jesus defeated Satan once for all. So Paul boasts in this way. Death is swallowed up in victory. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful imagery? Death is swallowed up in victory. Jesus ate Satan's lunch. That's what it says. He had his way with him and there was nothing that Satan could do about it. And so finally, as we've looked back, we consider what is it that this means for our life today and how do we apply it? You see, he descended to accomplish his victory that he might ascend. That's what Philippians chapter two tells us. That he who was God himself did not consider equality with God a good excuse not to serve the will of the Father and the good of the people. But he willingly laid down his life. He humbled himself and became obedient as a man. And as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. Verse 9, Philippians 2. But God raised him up and brought him to a place that is above every other place. He set him on a throne that is not like, that is not next to or even comparable with any other ever known to humanity. And that's where he ascended after he descended. And it tells us in this passage in Ephesians, he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to men. What is this that he would give gifts to men? Well, Paul rejoices at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, by telling us this. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus was the victor who collected the spoils of his win. But he did not deposit them into the royal treasury. Instead, he gave them to his people. Is this not a beautiful picture of our king and the kingdom of God in which we've become citizens as Christians? Jesus won for us to give his victory to us. That's how we apply the resurrection for our life today, but also for eternity. He flips the idea of the victor spoil upside down. And instead of just doing that which bolsters his kingdom and his own throne, he gives his gift to his people. And he says, my kingdom will become a kingdom of royal priests and they shall all have the crown that I have won. This, friends, is what we must understand in order to look at Jesus' second crown. And so what I want you to see today on this Resurrection Sunday is this. Jesus wore the crown of thorns to reward all who believe in him with his crown of victory. He's the king of two crowns. One he wore for us. The other he won for us and he's giving it to you and he's giving it to me and he's giving it to every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ to repent of their sins to receive that forgiveness and cleansing and to walk with him you know this idea of crown in the new testament really you have to understand the backdrop of it because in first century Rome 
This idea of crown was really a laurel wreath. We've probably seen this in pictures of the early Olympic days out of Greece and those kinds of things. But these laurel wreath of leaves were worn at banquets. They were given to athletes who stood on the victory podium. They were given to uh, uh, those who were recognized in some kind of a civic honor and even to military honors. This was the way that you received the highest honor was to be given one of these laurel wreaths or crowns. And the word for crown or wreath that's used in the New Testament is a word that denotes honor or glory. It denotes royalty and royalness in its rule. It identifies a king, and a king represents his kingdom. And so when we think about a king of two crowns and we think about Jesus' crown of victory that he gives, we understand that Jesus was chosen as king by his birthright and he's been enthroned as king because of his victory. That's what we understand that today he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven ruling and reigning over all things as sovereign. He and he alone is the one crowned as king of the kingdom of God. And so when these New Testament authors use this word for crown, it's a, it's a metaphor to represent the reward that we receive from King Jesus. And and Resurrection Sunday is, is our remembrance of his crown of thorns that he wore for us in order to win his crown of victory and then give it to us. And this crown he gives, friends, it's supreme above all others. It's his crown that he gives to those who believe in him as the reward of becoming a citizen of his kingdom. So crown one is Jesus wore our crown of thorns for us to defeat sin, Satan, death, hell, and the grave. Crown number two, Jesus won this crown and he gives it to all who believe in him. I want to point out three rewards of Jesus' crown of victory that compels us to believe in him. And friends, listen, if you're here today and you've never come to a a moment or a point in your life where you've put your faith in Jesus, not to just have an intellectual knowledge about him, but a faith placed in him to trust what he has done on the cross and to trust what he offers in this crown of victory so that you receive your forgiveness and cleansing of sin to walk in righteousness with him. That's our invitation for you today. And this crown of victory can become yours by that faith in him. The first reward that we see, though, of this crown of victory is the crown of righteousness. Crown of righteousness. An old man writes to a young pastor in the New Testament. The old man, his name is the Apostle Paul. And that young man, his name is Timothy. And he's charging this young Timothy who's worked with him for a couple of decades now. And he says, Timothy, you've got to remain steadfast in the ministry and the preaching of the word. Understand, it's not going to get easier. There are going to be days that you want to quit. There's going to be days that you want to give up. There's going to be days you want to check out. But you've got to remain steadfast. And then he concludes these words to him in chapter 4, verse 8 of 2 Timothy by recognizing the nearness of the end of his own life. Recognizing that the end of his life will also mean the end of his ministry and have everything I've said and everything I've done and the way I've led and all that I have done to serve my king. Has it been for benefit? Has there been value from it? 
And Paul says with rejoicing instead of fear or regret that he knows exactly what awaits for, for him. And listen to what he says. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus' crown of victory will be the believer's crown of righteousness when we stand before the judge on that day. He who is the only righteous one who will ever, did ever, and will ever walk on the face of this earth will be the very one to judge us righteous. Not because of our own doing, not because of our own being, but because of his doing. Paul looks forward to this great reward from the Lord Jesus, his crown of righteousness. You see, this crown will not be a recognition of Paul's righteousness. Paul would be the first one to tell you he had no righteousness of his own that merited anything from God. And any measure of righteousness that he had never measured up to God's standard of his holy law. This was a guy that sought out and persecuted, yea, to murder Christians. He had plenty of reason to think that God would hate him. But he had every trust that in fact quite the opposite God's love had been bestowed upon him in a crown of righteousness. And friends, this crown of righteousness is the essence of our salvation in Jesus Christ. That by faith in Jesus, we are made right with God. We, we are made righteous. That the righteousness of Jesus Christ, what does that mean? That when he lived a perfect, sinless life on this earth, he perfectly obeyed every aspect of the law of God without any measure or inkling or even a diversion into any sinfulness or doubt of the Father himself. Jesus perfectly performed and he supplied the measure of God's demand from his righteous law. And did he do it for himself? No, friends, he did it that he might be qualified as the perfect spotless lamb to be offered for the sins of people. We're made, we're made right with God because of Jesus' righteousness that the Bible says, here's the big word, is imputed upon us. It's placed upon us. It doesn't come from within. It comes from him. And Jesus, because he was raised from the grave, he gives to all who believe in him this righteousness, as Paul says. You see, Jesus' righteousness that is placed on us, it sets us free. It sets us free from trying to earn God's love, from trying to impress God enough that maybe somehow, some way, he might love us. Friends, God's already loved you all that he can love you. And that was demonstrated by Jesus' death on the cross. But Jesus' righteousness placed on us, it, it also not only sets us free from trying to earn God's love, but from trying to accomplish our own washing of sin and wrongdoing. That there is woven into the person, everyone who is created, every human being ever, there is this thing called a conscience. And the Bible tells us that the law of God is written on our conscience and deep within us, usually when it is dark, silent, and still, we know that in our own flesh, we are not right with God. There is a longing for something more 
that even on our highest days of success, something's still missing. I remember a few years ago, Tom Brady won his sixth Super Bowl ring. And on public television in an interview, he said, but there's still something more. That's righteousness, friends. With all of our great earning and achieving, without Jesus, we testify to ourselves we're still missing something. Sets us free from trying to achieve something we can never attain to. And it also sets us free so we can live and walk in the light of his righteousness, in the light of his truth, where joy and peace and love pervade and flow down from above, from the the giver of every good and perfect gift, the Father who gives generously and uh, lavishes his love upon us. You see, friends, when you believe in Jesus to repent of your sin, he forgives you by the work of his first crown, his crown of thorns that he might bestow on you his crown of victory which is his righteousness. There is, friends, no good reason not to believe in Jesus. There's a lot of excuses we make, but there's no good reason. This first reward is the essence of Jesus' two crowns where he wore our crown of sin, shame, guilt, and condemnation that by faith we might receive his crown of righteousness. Friends, I ask you today, are you tired of trying to measure up Are you tired of trying to earn a love that satisfies you and releases you from the striving and earning of it? Are you tired of trying to measure up to be accepted? Have you found that the applause of people, while at times it seems so satisfying, as quickly as it rises, even faster it falls? It doesn't sustain, it doesn't satisfy Only Jesus' righteousness can do that for you. Do you know his righteousness by faith in him? The second reward that we see is not only the crown of righteousness, but it's the crown of life. Jesus' brother James and, and even his beloved disciple John, they use this same reference to speak of Jesus' crown of victory as the crown of life. And both of them use it as his reward for his followers who endure and persevere even through suffering in order to motivate his followers towards a focus on faithfulness and following him. James chapter 1, after his introductory remarks of his letter in verse 3 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of every kind. Because you know, and then he goes on to explain how the process of trusting Jesus, even in the face of trials and suffering, proves to be worth it because of what Jesus is working out in you. Such that he culminates in verse 12 of James 1 this way. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive The crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Friends, James is commending us that Jesus is worthy of every ounce of endurance and perseverance 
because of the reward that he gives to us. You see, when we understand that Jesus is in the midst of our struggles, when Jesus is with us in our trials and in our hard times and our hardships, and all that he is doing is not wasting it, but he is producing within us what he has already placed on us in his righteousness, that he is bringing from us Christ's likeness in us through each and every element of every trial. And he culminates this reward of God by the promise of the crown of life. This is the crown of eternal life that, that Christians live with a hope that doesn't perish, spoil, or fade because it doesn't end when this earthly existence ends. Death held no power over Christ. And he was the firstborn of the resurrection, meaning that in the way he was resurrected, so shall we be resurrected to eternal life. Do you know the crown of life, friends? Because it's this crown of life, James argues, that becomes our motivation to endure and hold faithful to Jesus Christ in the hard times of life. It's the crown of life that reminds us that when our grip is weak and holding faithful to Jesus Christ, we come to understand it's his hand that's holding us in the midst of it. When we trust in Jesus and his reward, we are strengthened to face and endure whatever may come in this life. And that's where we find John's words, where they're actually not John's words, but he's recording the Lord Jesus' words. When Jesus tells the church at Smyrna, some of you will suffer persecution, some of you will be martyrs, you will die from persecution, but none of you should fear this because of the promised crown of life. Here's what he says in chapter 2 of Revelation verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The Roman centurion looked up at Jesus Christ on the cross and in the moment of guarding, he was probably one who spat in his face. He was probably one who whipped his back with the cat of nine tails. He was surely one that entertained the mocking and, and, and the gambling for his clothes said surely this was the son of God. Why? Because of the way he endured the suffering all the way to the very end for you and I. And Jesus tells his people that when you are faithful unto death, there is a reward that is untouched and unmatched in this world. Every glory of this earth culminated and accumulated will not even compare to what Jesus gives to us. You go, that's too good to be true. Most things are. This one is not. This is True. This is our highest reward, friends, to those who are faithful to Jesus. And how important this is for us because today it becomes so easy to ask, is it really worth it to remain faithful to Jesus Christ? I mean, when the, the forces opposing seem so powerful, when the public ridicule and mocking seems so overwhelming, the question easily enters our mind, is it worth it to obey the Lord? How bad could it really be just to give in in this one little instant? And we hear the allure in that temptation 
In the same way, one of the most common objections from people who are not believers that we hear about not wanting to believe in Jesus is this. It's the existence of evil and suffering in the world. And, And the argument goes something like this. If God is really powerful, why does he allow suffering and why doesn't he stop evil? And friends, this question surely is too great for us to answer simplistically in only a few moments, but let me give you a kind of a high-level view of the answer. You see, this this question only makes sense to a worldly-minded way of thinking that is absent of faith because it reveals that the person asking it doesn't understand God nor the nature of evil. And the Bible tells us that this way of thinking is actually absent of faith. Why? Because the question itself presumes that people are inherently good by nature, that they are without sin and they only do some sinful things on occasion. Rarely, though, in this argument. And because of that, they conclude we got to be okay with God. Could God, who says he's loving really condemn to death and to hell those who reject him. You see, friends, God does not end evil and suffering in the world for this reason, because he's being patient with you. He wants none to perish, but all to come to eternal life. He's patient with you. And you say, what do I have to do with evil and suffering in the world? No more than you had to do with Jesus' death on the cross. Which means that each one of us are accomplices by our own sinful nature. That's what we had to do with it. Because of us, he had to die. Because of us, he's the only one that could die. But because of us, he was glad to die. You see, friends, one day God will remove evil. God will destroy suffering. But with it will go all of those who have rejected, who have denied, who have ignored or simply neglected him. They shall be destroyed with it. For on that day, it will be revealed what Lord you served with your life. That's why. Because there is a greater glory in this world it is the crown of life the resurrection proves that Jesus is worthy of our faith even in the face of suffering because his resurrection friends listen to me gives meaning and gives purpose to everything do you realize friends there's not one moment of hardship of trial of suffering that God will not use immediately to form his image more perfectly in you and ultimately to bring victory over for you. The crown of life declares that Jesus' resurrection means suffering in this world is never wasted and that this becomes the Christian's power to live faithful to the Lord. Friends, have you confessed your need for God today by repenting of your sin? by being forgiven, by being cleansed so that you can receive his crown of life that he offers to you. Finally, Paul also speaks of another reward of the crown. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 25, he introduces us to the crown of glory. 
He says this, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. You see, Paul states that everyone competes to win the prize, but only one wins the prize. And if you want to win, you've got to compete in such a way to win. That's why he says an athlete exercises self-discipline and self-control, doesn't give in to what's easier and what feels better. He stays focused on what is essential to win, and that is only proven when he crosses the finish line first and he's the victor. But he says even at that moment, the wreath he is awarded is a perishable wreath is a perishable wreath. And Paul makes this argument, our wreath is imperishable as Christians. Our wreath does not spoil, does not fade, cannot be tarnished, cannot dull in any way. You see that word for wreath is the same word for crown. And he says, the crown for which we live that is given to us by Jesus Christ because it is his, is an imperishable crown. Friends, every day holds temptations and trials that cause us to ask, is obedience to God really worth it? There's no end to the distraction and the temptations that that lure us to disregard the Lord and his word. But friends, these are always the easy way, which are false hopes and false glories. And I'll say to many today that may be in the room with us even now, I get it. Some of you have said no to Jesus because of a bad experience with his church, a bad experience with somebody that called themselves a Christian, a bad experience with somebody who claimed to represent Jesus. But I'm telling you, friends, that's not the way the gospel works. It should be And we are here to be faithful witnesses to his goodness and his glory. That's our commissioning. But we're not perfect. You see, you receive Christ to be made like him. You don't believe enough in these people to somehow earn him. Our lives are a testimony because he is in the process of making us more like him. And when we prove to be imperfect, we only prove the true power of his goodness for us. That will also welcome you if you'll put your faith in him today. And when you do this, the crown of glory that you will be given, friends, it's not ours. It's his. It's his crown that he gives to us. In Christ, our lives are not lived for us, but for him So that in eternity, our lives do not get adorned with our glory, but his eternal glory. It is Jesus' crown of glory that becomes the Christian's great reward for eternity and to motivate our hope even today. You know, I asked Friday night at the end of our Good Friday service when we focused on the crown of thorns. Have you looked on the cross and said of Jesus, that's my king? who bore my crown to die my death on my cross. I'm telling you, friends, looking upon the cross on Good Friday and making that confession is the same confession that today says, that's my king who sits on the throne in heaven and this is his crown and I serve him with this life so that 
when time ceases, I will spend eternity with him. And I wear this crown today so that on that day, I will be able to take it off and cast it back to his feet in worship. This is the crown of victory. His righteousness placed on us. His life given to us. His glory adorning us. If you settled in your mind and heart that Jesus is worth it every day in every situation, if not, friends, I exhort you, let today be the day. You see, in the kingdom of God, to the victor's faithful followers go the spoils of his victory. Jesus wore a crown of thorns to reward all who believe in him with his crown of victory.